I say yes and, and I say and not or, and I say more not less. That's today's guest, educator, author, and composer Travis Cross, applying improvisational acting techniques to our approach. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about today's guest. Travis J. Cross serves as professor of music and director of bands at UCLA, where he conducts the wind ensemble, leads the graduate wind conducting program, and chairs the music department. He recently contributed to The Future of the Wind Band from GIA Publications. This thought-provoking book contains exchanges between leading wind band practitioners and music education philosophers, grappling with the most profound issues facing the music education profession and the path of music education in our schools. Find Travis's full bio, show notes, and resources at musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? His idea to do concerts with varying lengths of rehearsal cycles is fascinating, and it makes me want to have a do-over for some of my years of teaching. How about you, Steve? I know the first part talks about why band, but I feel like it could easily be why choir or why orchestra. I think this is important listening, especially for our secondary music teachers, as they wrestle with questions like, should I add guitar class or rock band class to my curriculum? As Steve hinted, this is another two-part episode. Today, we talk about the answer to the question, why band, or choir, or orchestra. Next time, we'll get to programming, making rehearsals more process-oriented, and of course, the lightning round. Let's get to the first part of our conversation with Travis J. Cross. Travis Cross, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Looking forward to great conversation. Well, we've asked you here today to answer the question, why band? It's expensive, requires years of training, has limited repertoire available, necessitates large numbers of people to be available at the same time, at the same ability level. Most people don't play their instrument after they graduate from high school or from college. Why do we do this anymore? Wouldn't teaching everybody to be proficient on the ukulele make more sense? In other words, please make me feel better about the profession to which I've dedicated almost 30 years of my life. Go. Why band? I think the answer to that is because of how it makes us feel. Because of the physical, visceral, emotional experience that we take from participating in it, whether as teachers, as students, participants, even audience members, there is something about an ensemble of that size. There's something about live music. There's something about live music in a group and I think there's something about the repertoire that speaks to us, that helps us to express things, that gives us a community in which to do it, that is a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. And because people like to hear music and people like to make music, there are lots of scientific and theoretical and philosophical reasons to do something, but we're human beings and our humanity is important. And I think if people didn't love doing it, it would go away. God knows there's enough pressures, all the things you listed, plus how much it costs, plus budgets in schools, plus space. There are so many reasons for it to go away. And the fact that it hasn't, I think is pretty good proof that there's something compelling about doing it 
And I think that's largely socio-emotional that keeps it with us today. I mean, I'll take the negative spin on that. I think it's still around because it's just always been around and people want to stick with what they know. And also they want the marching band to play at football games. And that's that's why we have it. It's not because there is this collective mass of individuals in the United States that wants to sit in an auditorium and listen to Holst. How do you respond to that? Let me respond to that in two ways. First of all, you know, classical music is not dead. Classical music is omnipresent. Now, it's not Lincoln Center, Carnegie Hall, tuxedos, and dead white European men classical music that's omnipresent, but just around us on television, in commercials, in films, you know, music is is an omnipresent part of our lives and part of our experience. So how do you define classical music in that context? What, what's You say classical music surrounds us, but, but not dead white European composers. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, I, I would use classical uh, small c, and I would really say concert music, you know, serious concert music with artistic focus, which is not the best way to describe it because that implies that other music doesn't have an artistic focus. And I think that, you know, a great pop song is wildly artistic as well. But let's say that music growing from the European classical tradition played by ensembles with traditional instruments, that kind of music, uh, it might not be Beethoven 5, it might not be the whole first suite, but but that kind of music, music in that vein and music for which these repertoires prepare people to go and make, either as composers, producers, or performers, uh, is omnipresent in our society. So that's part one. But part two is that it isn't the primary means of popular music culture anymore. You know, in 1960, the West Side Story soundtrack was number one on the charts. Probably in 1920, the Sousa Band was number one in the charts. Or Scott Joplin, you know, which we would have called, considered popular music then, and now we sort of steal as classical music to a certain extent. But, you know, whereas in 1815, Beethoven sort of was popular music, now we have this whole other kind of popular music that is wildly present in the world. So the fact that that hasn't already erased the classical music, small c classical music that we have in band, choir, orchestra in the schools is either because Steve says we just are so lazy that we just haven't gotten around to getting rid of it. The habit is so strong. But I mean, think of that. Think of how many other things in education change all the time to go with the latest blowing of the wind. So the fact that we haven't gotten rid of it, despite the fact that most of the music people consume is popular music, I think is not just because of inertia, not just because of football, but because there is that value to making that kind of music. I would also say if, as a third thing to my two-part answer, there's an efficiency to it. The, you know, you might dismissively call it an industrial revolution kind of efficiency, but there's an efficiency to delivering instruction to 100 people at a time in a choir or to 80 people, 60 people at a time in a concert band that doesn't exist when you're doing six people in a rock band together in one room with a teacher. Uh, so I think that's another reason why it why it has survived, to be cynical. But I, I think it really is because kids love doing it. If kids hated doing it, it, it wouldn't continue. And that certainly, I think, is the case in high school and college where students 
have much more autonomy over their schedule. The the cynic in me still says, uh, you got a bunch of kids in middle school band because that class has to exist to create prep periods for the other teachers and and so on. But uh, certainly, once they get to start making their choices, as we have all seen, if if students don't want to do something and they can they cannot, they'll they will definitely uh, uh, go that direction for sure. But I think it's also worth thinking about just a game of percentages. What's the whole Steve Jobs line? You know, you don't have to have eighty percent of the people buy your product in a country this big in a world this big. If you have five percent, you could be a, a billionaire. If you have one percent, so we we want more students to be involved. We'll talk about this more later, I'm sure. But it's still a pretty high percentage of students who can, who choose, when it becomes fully elective, who choose to participate. And I think that that's a vote of confidence in some ways. So let's, you know, make it real clear, make a real clear argument. So why not 60 ukuleles? Why not 60 recorders? What would you say, not to me, but maybe to a parent of a, of a middle school student who wants to know why the saxophone is so expensive or why they're being asked to play the trumpet because 10 students already signed up for the saxophone and now we need trumpet players. And it's because this magical band music requires the right numbers on the right parts at the right time. And why can't we all just play the saxophone or all play the recorder or all play the ukulele? We could, uh, and we could learn a lot of things from that. There are a lot of valuable things we could take away. You know, I give you my initial reaction. I think that people are drawn to interesting colors. I think people are drawn to variety and contrast in the music they hear. I think that, you know, a string orchestra without winds is a, a single timbre in different ranges. But there's still some, you know, there's some significant range differential there. A choir is a single timbre to a certain extent. Uh, it's a single instrument, but they also have text, which is a, a, a valuable addition. So when you have symphony orchestra and band, you have a lot of colors. You have a lot of different textures and timbres and expressive possibilities. I think that counts for something. I think that makes it more interesting to listen to. I think it also makes it more engaging music to make. You have to think about it in a different way and process it in a different way than if you're all doing, you know, making the same sound or timbre. So I think that's the big operating difference between 60 ukuleles or 60 recorders. I think if you've got a mariachi and you have 10 different instruments, that's much more fulfilling and satisfying than if you had 60 guitars. And you would contend that the parent of this hypothetical student, even if they don't understand the word tone color, or when I say the instruments have different timbres or whatever, that they'll know it when they hear it. And if you give this this parent the choice between listening to the 60-person ukulele ensemble playing you know, a lot of unison are all playing the same instrument versus a band, they will naturally be drawn towards the band because of the variety. Yeah. I mean, someone who has an EDD or a PhD might do a research project in a totally pristine environment where you take two school populations that are very similar in every other way. And one of them has a recorder ensemble and one of them has a concert band. And then you see over five years or 10 years what the retention rate is. You know, it, that 
we're not asking them to make a choice between recorder, ensemble, or band. We're we're providing one uh, and putting students in it. So we really have no way to test what I'm about to say. But I think over time, I think people would get more bored of the recorder ensemble than they, they get bored of the band. I think that if we could set up some sort of a way to test that, I think we'd prove it. It's just the scenario you're setting up, Steve, where people could elect one or the other. We we don't give them that option. We set up the curriculum, just like we don't give them the option of what they're going to study in U.S. history, at least for now, and what they're going to study in, in science. Well, you bring up a great point, which is the parents, the students don't have the option at the moment, just like they don't have the option for the history curriculum. But the big difference and this is why I think this is an important topic for us, and I'm sure why you all contributed chapters to that Future of the Wind Band book, is that we as music teachers, unlike our history colleagues, our history colleagues at the high school level, they're told, you teach U.S. history. This is what we're hiring you to do. We, by and large, are, are in control of our own curriculum. And we might be expected to teach band, or we're hired to teach band, but I am noticing a trend where more and more teachers are making a decision that teaching band in the way that you and I have known it to exist for all of these years, they're making a decision that that's not what they want. And they want to do rock band or they want to teach garage band or they want to use recorders and, and ukuleles. And so again, the students are not getting the choice, but in some cases now the teachers are making the choice that we're going to shift our effort, our time resources into a music class that looks more like this. I mean, I don't think teachers have that much control over what they do. I think that if, if you were hired as a band director and then wanted to change to rock band or guitar ensemble or something, you know, that would be a process. I think there's there's some places where you would have the autonomy to make that decision. But I, I think the freedom we have is over the repertoire we program. We're the English teacher who gets to choose the poems and the books, the novels, but we, we generally aren't choosing that we're not going to teach English, we're going to teach French instead, that sort of thing. But to actually answer your question, I think that there are a number of programs that are moving in that direction. And there are a number of organizations and thought leaders that are pushing in that direction within the music field, within the music education field, because because they believe that either that there are fatal flaws with the large ensemble or there are fatal flaws with the uh, history of the, the so-called classical European canon, uh, and there are issues with it. Uh, I don't think they're fatal issues, but there are issues with it. So there there is movement in that direction. I don't feel like the sky's falling, and I don't feel like the future of the genre or the experience in the schools is at great existential risk for all the reasons we've already discussed. I think it's uh, some, of, some of it inertia, some of it philosophical, some of it just emotional. But to be fair, this podcast has quite a number of episodes now that have given some serious attention to some of those fatal flaws, Travis, that you bring up. It's almost like we're providing equal time here to talk about the answer to the question Steve started with. Why band? Can you help us resolve those fatal flaws and still say yes to band? Yeah, I say yes and. I say yes and. And I say and not or. And I say more, not less. I think it's important for us to acknowledge. And the school where I teach has been out front on this in ways that are thrilling to some and disappointing to others. 
in terms of, of perhaps decentering the Western canon or equally esteeming all musical traditions. That might be another way to put it. The so-called European classical isn't the best. And one way we do that is by using adjectives. Is not saying that this is the only music that exists. Acknowledging and celebrating other musics, other forms of music, uh, I think is important. But I mean, if you think about all the foods you like, here's a way to put it. Why can't a Chinese restaurant serve Chinese food? Is, is the existence of a Chinese restaurant and the fact that they don't serve crepes and chicken tikka masala and cheeseburgers a dismissal of the existence of those cuisines? Now, where this gets sticky for us is that if the only restaurant we have in the public schools is a Chinese restaurant, we are, we're sort of making a choice. That's where I go back to the, the yes and. I think that we frame the question in terms of how can we reach more people? How can we broaden what we do? Not how can we get rid of a perfectly valid, meaningful, valuable, compelling form of expression. There are those who argue that there's finite resources, there's finite time. There are people that argue that in order for uh, professional orchestral programs to have more composers of color, more female composers, they must remove other works. And, and that is a logically sound. In order to add something in, you have to take something out. And, and some people have said, we need to make room. What 15 pieces, what 20 pieces are we going to retire? Or what pieces are we going to put a moratorium on for the next year in order to make room? Because if we're always doing Beethoven 5 and Beethoven 7 and Mahler 1 and Mahler 5 and Shostakovich 5 and Dvorak 9, we need to just put those on hold. That's where I disagree. That's where I think we have to be creative about finding new avenues, about creating more space and more resources. Uh, we are going to have to make some editorial decisions. Uh, we're not going to be able to do Beethoven 5 as many times as we did. But I think once we start talking about we need to not do that thing, that thing is invalid, that thing is uh, needs to be uh, removed or put on hold, that's where I get uncomfortable. The other kind of fatal flaw, you know, is the very historical connection between colonialism, white supremacy, European migration, conquest, and all that, that's probably more than we have time for in this in this webcast. But I think it I, I think we can acknowledge that without saying that the music and the expression and the, the experiences and the beauty and the joy are invalidated. And I do want to have a little bit of a discussion about programming, but uh, this leads very nicely into what I promise is the last question about this fictitious recorder ensemble. And that is, if we take this yes and philosophy, let's say our band director has seven periods in the day. And right now, all seven of those are dedicated to teaching lessons and band. Are you okay if one of those periods goes to starting a recorder class. And that's going to mean either fewer kids get lessons, the lessons are shorter, the lesson groups are larger. It's going to hurt the band program. And if your answer is yes, then are you okay with two periods? Are you okay with three periods? Like where, how would you respond to the yes and approach as it pertains to finite amount of time and staffing? Yeah, I think that's where expertise comes into play, both in, in administrators and in music teachers. And I think we have to do a better job of 
of having these discussions and asking these questions of our music ed students so they leave able to kind of think critically about these things and really make informed decisions because I think it's going to be different in different places. Uh, it's going to be different depending on the the socioeconomic situation in the community. It's going to be different depending on the, the tradition of the program. It's going to be different depending on which students are currently being re reached and which students are not and whether new students will be reached. So first of all, I think we have to ask, who do we get? Who joins the recorder ensemble who is not going to join the band? And I don't think there are very many. I think there are more students who are going to join the guitar ensemble or who are going to join the, the rock band class or, or, or certainly the mariachi, you know, that are, that are going to join other different repertoires that, that speak to their lived experience. But I think if, if the purpose is to do something else, just to say we're doing something else when what we're doing is reaching a student population and helping them grow. I'm not, I don't think that's as strong an argument as if the other thing brings more students to the table, allows more students to experience and learn from and grow from the value of studying and creating music. And then it, it becomes a cost benefit analysis. So, so, so you, 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 you say what, in our situation, in our community, with our resources, with our expertise. If, if, if I know a lot about rock music and I can teach a great class, I'm probably gonna be pretty effective. If I know nothing about it, uh, that might not be the best idea. So you know, all these different factors in terms of the specific situation then factor in to say, who am I helping that I haven't been helping? What opportunities are we providing that haven't been provided? And the benefit of that is how we say, well, we're only going to get a 37 instead of a 39 at state contest because they're going to be larger lesson groups or fewer sectionals or less this or that. That's when you say, I am comfortable. And let's segue a little bit into repertoire right now. Please. If you can make a choice to do six concerts a year, with five weeks of rehearsal or you know eight weeks of rehearsal versus three concerts a year with 15 weeks of rehearsal. And the product is going to sound different. Uh, but what the students learn will also be different. And different programs are gonna take different philosophies because different teachers have different experiences and different teachers have different strengths. But in each of those cases, you gain something and lose something. If you do one concert per semester, or one concert per four quarter, you do four concerts a year, you're going to reach a level of performance excellence that you're not going to reach if you do eight concerts, if you do two concerts a quarter. But you're also not going to engage with as much repertoire. You're not going to be learning as quickly. You're not going to be forced into that situation. So you lose something, you gain something. We make that decision in our programming. We make that decision in our scheduling. Does everybody do marching band in the fall? Is the marching band optional and after school? Gain something, lose something. And, and you each program figures it out in the way that works for them, ideally. We hope they figure out figure it out in the way that works for them. I mean, I, just to talk about that again for, for 90 seconds, I am of the belief, if I were building a high school program from scratch and I had all the resources I, I needed, I would have one concert per year that had a longer rehearsal cycle. Probably whatever led up to state contest or festival. We would do 15 minutes of music and work on it for 10 weeks. 
so that the students could experience that level of excellence. That getting into that level of depth, that level of thoroughness, that level of repetition sets a standard that is valuable for them to have. But then the rest of the year, I would do smaller chunks, more music in less time so that they also have the experience of having to process more quickly, work more efficiently. I think that doing everything fast without any depth robs the students of that experience of excellence. But doing three concerts a year where everything is 10, 12 weeks, excellence, 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 robs the students of variety. I'm not saying that's the right uh, solution for every program. But if I were building it from scratch, all things being equal, I would try to design my season so I would have a four-week rehearsal and a Pops concert, but also a 10-week rehearsal and do, you know, two, do Lincoln Traposi at State Contest or something. And we will take our break there. Please join us for the next episode as Travis shares his ideas on programming, making our rehearsals more process-oriented, and, of course, the lightning round. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. Let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.